0: friends, this is Re-Orthodox Theology. Re because it's a way of renewing, reimagining, and revisiting timeless theological concepts. My name is Justin. Thanks for joining today's episode with Dr. Derwin Gray. We talk about his book, How to Heal Our Racial Dividing. Guys, this book is one of the most convincing and biblical books in Jesus's involvement in racial Reconciliation. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Check it out. Leave a review. Buy the book. It's really good. Y'all, I am so excited to welcome former NFL player, speaker, preacher, father, author, pastor, and Dr. Derwin Gray. Dr. Gray, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to... Uh... Uh, partner with you and you and your ministry and all the people listening.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I I really appreciate this. I'm so excited for this uh, talk with you today. This is such a blessing because your book you wrote, I have it right here. Heal how to heal your our racial divide. It's a phenomenal book. I, I'm gonna have it linked in the show notes for people to buy it. Go buy it. But I I really liked it and I want to talk to you about it because, like many people, um, I've read. Se- a lot of books on racial reconciliation. But I speculate most of them focus on sociology and sprinkle on scripture. But your your approach was strictly Bible and Jesus are the focus and everything else, you know, is, is a benefit. And I just, I loved that. So, before we dive into that book and, and kind of just your heart, your theology, I'd love for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with you, can you just share a b- little bit about who you are and uh, what you do?
1: Yeah, so I am Vicki's husband. We'll be married uh, 31 years on May 23rd. We met second semester of my freshman year at college. Both of us went to Brigham Young, even though neither one of us were uh, Mormon. And I have a 26-year-old daughter and a 22-year-old son. Both of them are college graduates, which... I mentioned that because in my family, I was the first one to graduate um, college, and so now uh, we've got myself and my two kids, and so that's pretty cool. Of course, my wife's working on her master's as well. She was Valor Victorian, so she's the smartest one of the group. But yeah, so um, I did not uh, grow up as a Christian. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas on the west side. Uh, I didn't realize that it was an at-risk environment. That's all you knew. Uh, my mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. Uh, 17 when I was born. My dad was 19 when I was born. Both of them struggled with various issues, substance abuse, mental health issues. So my grandparents primarily raised me. But at about age 13, that's when I recognized that football was not only a sport I loved, but football was a means, or or, or better yet, it was a vehicle that would drive me out of where I was, and I wanted to get out of my environment. Like I didn't understand words like trauma, stress. I just knew there has to be something more and football is a way to do it. So I developed a insatiable work ethic. I became very skilled in understanding the art and science of football and accepted a scholarship to BYU. So you got a black kid going to not only a white context, but a Mormon white context, which is super extra white. But nevertheless, <laughs> it was a great experience and it actually helps me now as a multi-ethnic church pastor, because growing and going into a Mormon context meant I had to become curious. To become curious means asking questions about people, because you can't live in a foreign environment if you don't understand the culture. And as a kid, I didn't know that's what I was doing. Uh, But in God's sovereignty, that's how he made me. And so uh, met my wife there, had a legendary career there. My wife was incredible as well. And went to the NFL, and I thought, man, this is it. Like, this is heaven. Uh, I'm going to have money to help my family. I'm going to overcome my insecurities. Everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And that was like total opposite. First year was difficult. Wasn't playing that much. Uh, I met this guy named Uncle Sam in the NFL called the Taxman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met some people named FICA. And I'm like, who is FICA? Why are they taking my money out of my check? And I'm like, wow, this money isn't as much as you thought. So first year was tough. Second year was better. Third year, I was a team captain. I was crushing it. It was great. But hmm. during that third year, 1995, that's when I recognized, like, wait, hold, hold a minute. I can't love my wife the way she deserves. I can't forgive my dad. I can't forgive hmm. myself. Who am I going to be when my NFL career is over? Because the NFL stands for not for long. And so I live with this persistent anxiety and fear. I was a compulsive stutterer. I wasn't that smart in school. Mm-hmm. And so that existential anxiety was was there. But mm-hmm. because God is awesome and he's good, I had a teammate named Steve Grant, but his nickname was the naked preacher because every day after mm-hmm. practice, he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist. And he'd literally ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm like, bro, do you know you're half naked? So I got introduced to the naked preacher, and one day he asked me a question that led to you and I being on this podcast now. He said, do you know Jesus? And I began a five-year process of the life that I built upon sand began to be washed away by the waves of life, like unforgiveness, not being able to love my wife, uh, not being able to forgive myself, not knowing who I would be outside of the NFL. And on August 2nd, 1997, in a small dorm room in Anderson, Indiana, fifth year in the NFL training camp, uh, I went back to my dorm room after lunch and I called my wife and I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And I didn't do a sinner's prayer, but I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was loved, I was forgiven. And for three nights, I literally cried. And growing up where I grew up, Crying was a sign of weakness. I was taught a man never cries, but I just right. cried with this thought. How could someone like Jesus love someone like me? Hmm. And his grace just overwhelmed me, and I fell in love with him, and I love him more today than I have at any other time, and I'm still amazed by his grace and love. And so my wife came to faith six months before I did through a woman at work as well. So we become Christians and all of a sudden it's like we're thrown back into this segregated United States because, you know, my wife and I were used to partying at the club, you know, black people, white people, Asian people, Latino pe- people. Then we joined Jesus's club and it's like, okay, you got to go to black church or a white church. And mm-hmm. as we, and as we read the Bible, we said, okay, we see Jews and Gentiles were in an early church together what in the world is a Gentile? Well, a Gentile is everybody else. So Jesus and the early church, Jesus not only forgave sins, but he created a family with different colored skins. And when his family loved each other, John 13, 35, the world will know you're my disciples. When his family was unified, not uniformity, but unified, the world will know that the father sent the son. And so as a brand new Christian, I begin to ask pastors like, well, If this is what the Bible says, why is the church so segregated? And man, I got so many racist, cowardice, unbiblical answers. One uh, white pastor said, Derwin, I think you're right, but I'm afraid that if I did what you said, white men would leave the church because they'd be afraid their daughters would marry black men. I had a Latino pastor say, don't do it. You're going to steal our people. I had an Asian pastor say, well, the language— of his particular ethnicity within the Asian context was more important than reaching other people. And I had a black pastor say, man, you crazy. We can't trust white people. Are you kidding? And besides, white people would never follow a black pastor. So one of the great things about being naive and not growing up in church is you like literally believe the Bible. You literally believe that if Jesus did it, then he can do it again. He's the same today, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And that the Holy Spirit that blew the winds of mercy upon the early church, uh, he hasn't quit his job. And so that began to develop the seeds in my wife and I to ultimately plant Transformation Church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, We planted February 7, 2010. Our first Sunday, 701 people came. And it was like, what in the world is happening, right? Right. And God has been gracious. We are an intentionally Jesus-focused, gospel-centered church that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and we're on mission with Christ. Mission means justice and evangelism and discipleship. And uh, this past Easter, between online and physical attendance, 31,000 people attended e- Easter. We've never had that many. And... Uh, there is there is a hunger for a holistic gospel who not only saves the soul of man, but the whole of man, who not only yeah. cares about life in the womb, but life at the border. And yeah. so we want to holistically uh, represent Christ. And so my wife and I co-founded Transformation Church, and we have a beautiful team of people that love God and who want to embody the kingdom here on earth and Uh, People far and wide are coming to faith and growing in faith, and it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. You know, that's as I was reading and I've listened to a few of your sermons. That's what I I, I honestly, that's what I love about you, especially as an author. It makes you a little bit more trustworthy. Is that you didn't grow up in the church? You didn't graduate seminary at nineteen and start your own church, right? You've lived some life, and I, I think that gives some substance. Uh, to what you have to say, both in the book, and I'm sure, I'm sure your your church feels the same way.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm from the old school, right? Is that people who've actually lived something have the authority to talk about about it? And I'm just yeah. grateful for the life experiences God has given to my wife and I, because all leadership is autobiographical, right? So God redeems mm-hmm. the broken pieces oh, of our lives. And so Mm. growing up playing football on a team in high school that was multi-ethnic, going to a Mormon uh, uh, school, which is pretty much all white, but then playing in the NFL, which was incredibly diverse, um, Mm. but also some of the worst prejudice my wife and I ever experienced was my rookie year in the NFL. The older black players who were 30 and above did not like the fact that I was married to a white girl. The younger black players that were my age, it wasn't an issue. And so the hmm. worst prejudice I've ever experienced was from other black teammates.
0: Interesting. And
1: so, yeah, so that gives hmm. us perspective on how to lead and plant a multi-ethnic church. And uh, like I am a straight theology nerd. Like I want to teach what the Bible teaches. I don't I don't I don't want to give Derwin's opinion, uh Derwin's perspective. I want to enter into the mind of the authors of the first century Second Temple Jewish Church to take an ancient truth and apply it relevantly to a 2023 context.
0: Well, you mentioned it. Yeah. Usually, when I read books by pastors, you know, as someone in grad school, sometimes I could tell it's more for their congregation, it's not too deep. I could completely tell you're a scholar and a pastor. And I don't know how you did the balance. But it was amazing, this balance you had of, of scholarship, but also deep compassion for the readers. It was amazing. Really phenomenal. Well,
1: thank you. And, you know, that's, that's what I believe that I'm called to do is to take uh, – well, let me put it to you this way. My mentor, Dr. Norman Geisler, he wrote 103 books mm-hmm. and incredible philosopher, apologist. He said something like this. Um, When you really know a topic well, you can teach it to a child well. And so Mm. mastery of a topic is not sounding like people can't understand you. It's actually making it so simple people can understand. Simplicity is different than simple. I want to be simple, not simplistic. I want to take ancient truths Mm. and communicate them in a way that people can understand them without liquidating Mm. the ethos of what God says. And so I want to study to show myself approved uh, be- because I'm going to stand before God in judgment and he's going to ask me, what did you do with my sheep? And so I want to yeah. be as close to the good shepherd as possible that his mm. fragrance would be the aroma from which I live from.
0: Amen. 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 I we're we're ten minutes in. You're dropping some serious gold. So I hope people are taking notes. So, what in like you you kind of talked about it a little bit. What inspired you to write this book? Was it like one instance or was it a long journey?
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so uh, I'll answer it in two ways. Um sure. I'll answer the, this the, this way. Every book that I write is a sum total of everything that's happened before that moment. And what I mean by by that is this, is that every aspect of our lives, God is weaving a tapestry of grace, and we can tap into that grace for the moment to share. Specifically, I wrote How to Heal Our Racial Divide because from 2015 and on, I seen within the church, not culture, but within the church— um a strain of disunity and ugliness around political idolatry like I've never seen before not only on the right but also on the left and unfortunately God's people got into this man-made fray on the right and on the left and what I wanted to do is I wanted to take people back to the Bible I wanted to take pe- people mm. back to Jesus I wanted to take people back to the apostle Paul racism Sexism, misogyny was much worse in Jesus's day than it is today. So, what I wanted to do was go back and say, oh, okay, number one, how did the early church deal with the prejudice and racism in the world? Now, let me pause here. Prejudice and racism is the sin of not loving your neighbor as you love yourself, which ultimately is a sin of not loving God. So first and foremost, because people will still on social media will say things like, there is no racism in America. And sarcastically, and I need to work on this, but sarcastically I'll say, that is great news. I hope that so many other sins can just disappear like, like greed and misogyny and oppression and uh, human trafficking. Can we just make those disappear too? And so I think we've lowered the bar of what racism is. Racism is, is this. I do not see you as an image bearer. Racism hmm. is this. I do not advocate on your behalf when injustice comes your way. Racism is this. I don't treat you as though Jesus died for you. Yeah. And so we've made the bar so low when in re- reality to despise another human being made in the image of God is to not love God. Not because people are God, that's a heresy, but because people are the crown jewel of God's creation. And thus, yeah. one of one of the things we, ha- we say here at Transformation Church is this, treat everybody like Jesus died for them because he did. So if we start there, um, we can make lots of pr- progress. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to present a book that was steeped in theology and the gospel giving historical realities, but also a present uh, power to do something about it. So every chapter Mm. has a prayer, things to think about, and questions. It's great for small groups. And intentionally, I wanted to write it very theologically because so much of this conversation, even amongst Christians, is sociological. A theological problem cannot be healed by sociology. Theology has sociological implications. So what happens is for a lot of white brothers and sisters who trust the Bible, they hear a lot about racial reconciliation. They hear a lot about racism, but it's from a sociological perspective. And what I do is I just unfold the Bible. Like I got a doctorate in first century, second temple Jewish context. I got that for a reason to open up the scriptures so that we can get in it and situate it and go, Wait a minute. So when Jesus did the two miracles of feeding on two sides of the Sea of Galilee, one was for Jews, one was for Gentiles. You know why? Because Matthew 11 says there's going to be the table or banquet of Abraham where Jews and Gentiles are together. I wrote these things so that people could see, man, Jesus went and talked to a Samaritan woman. Well, what is a Samaritan? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. What's the church supposed to be? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. What was a Samaritan woman? A female. What is the church? The bride of Christ. Hmm. And so I wanted to unpack these things because if we don't have a theological rooting, the winds of the culture are going to be too strong from the right and the left. The conservative right, racism isn't a problem. Be colorblind. No, we don't need to be colorblind. We need to be color blessed. To be colorblind is to ignore the colors and cultures of people made in the image of God. On the progressive left, it's justice without Jesus. Justice without Jesus is another form of oppression.
0: Right. I saw you post that on Twitter. I was going to ask you about that. Can you talk about that? How? What is justice without Jesus and how is that a pressure? Yeah,
1: I think in our current iteration of it in 2023, justice without Jesus is people on the progressive left saying, "Hey, something is wrong, so we're going to make it right. We're going to cancel you. Uh, we're going to we're going to mob attack you. Uh, we're going to we're going to do ad hominem attacks against you personally." And so what happens is instead of actually getting justice you then become the quote unquote oppressor. And so it's an right. overreaction to, I think, the religious right where rightly so, yes, life in the womb is precious and matters. Yeah. And we should protect life in the womb, but we should also protect life at the border. We should not be okay Amen. with children being Amen. put in cages. Um yep. we should, we should, we should desire immigration reform. I have lobbied on Capitol Hill to Republicans and Democrats. It is my opinion, which may be worth um, some cryptocurrency, which probably ain't worth much right now. Um, <laughs> I don't think either side wants the issue solved because it's a political pawn. If you looked at a diagram of what an immigrant has to do to get in the United States of America, it is... It's it's crazy. So we need a holistic understanding. And so justice without Jesus is oppression. And it's really important that justice means this. I love my neighbor as I love myself. That's what justice is. Justice in the Hebraic and, and Greek understanding is to wrong rights. And we need Mm -hmm. to get over our selective outrage. Like, we're, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Joe Biden wants to forgive college students. Hey, Joe Biden, I'll take that PPP loan. So, why is one of them socialism, but the other one isn't? It's because partisan blinds you because of the idolatry. So, that's why I Mm. think we have to start with the good news of the kingdom. My allegiance hmm. is the King Jesus. Therefore, I want to be a great citizen in my country, hmm. but I want to love the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Amen. So one of the, your thesis of the, at least I think it's the thesis. It says, but I contend that racial reconciliation in Christ is not peripheral to the gospel, an optional nice to have or a fad issue, but central to Christ's mission and God's plan. You've you've touched on this a little yeah. bit, but I I'd I'd be curious to hear a little bit more of how did you come to that conclusion? Cuz I'm sure we have, you know, you know, brothers and sisters or some people like Theo Bros who may say, "Well, that's not the gospel. You know, the gospel is all about souls." But yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more yeah. about your conclusion.
1: So, what I would do is I would say, let's go to Paul in Galatians 3 8, where he says, The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, and this, all the nations would be blessed. So, Paul is mm-hmm. obviously quoting Genesis 12 1 through 3. Genesis 11, the people scattered. Genesis 12, God calls Abram, eventually changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. And he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to create this global multi-ethnic family. That's what the word families means. All the families are ethnicities of the world. So through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you get the nation of Israel. According to the book of Isaiah, Israel existed so that those in darkness will come into the light, so that the Gentiles will come into the light. Well, Israel had ethnic badges that separated them from the Gentiles, the God they worship, circumcision, culture, festivals. Um, You had Passover, and you also had the Yom Kippur. Well, Israel utterly fails, and according to Deuteronomy 28 through 32, they would be put into exile. Well, there's a great exile, but there are rumors of a new and better and true Israel that will come, and that's Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus, he has 12 disciples. Jesus comes out of Egypt, just like Israel. Israel crossed the Red Sea, went to the wilderness. Jesus crossed the Jordan. Being baptized goes into the wilderness. So Jesus is a new and better Israel to live the life humans couldn't live, to die the death we should have died, to not only forgive our sins, but to declare us righteous. He raises again to now live in us so that God the Father can say, Abraham, here's the family I promised you, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so the gospel— It's not just about individual souls. It's more than that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. The gospel is there's a new king, and he's the king of kings, and he's come through his redemptive work to give the father the family he promised Abraham. And this family Mm. would be one where there's no the Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free nor slave, for they're one in Christ, and they are the offspring of Abraham. And so... You get everything that you've always wanted, reconciliation, righteousness, justice, Holy Spirit's power, seal and filling, but now you get a family. So mm-hmm. this idea that you can love God but not love your brothers and sisters is why we had slavery in the church in America. It's why in the civil rights movement, a lot of white evangelicals did not participate. When you have a vertical-only gospel Your discipleship and loving people horizontally will be neglected, and the devil loves it. Our gospel Mm -hmm. is vertical. We're reconciled unto God, and we're reconciled unto each other, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. This is intrinsic to the gospel. How in the world can I say, 1 John 4, 4, 20, 20, how can I say I love God whom I've never seen, but hate my brother who I see? And the word hate there is not like this disdain. It is not interested in, not considering. Mm. Mm. Like God doesn't call us to tolerate people, but to love people. And for those of us, for those listening going, well, I don't know. What I would say is this, is read my book, number one. And number two, the future of the church, not only in America and in the world, is brown and multi-ethnic. By 2050, one in three Christians will be a Nigerian woman. The only place in the world where Christianity is slowing down is in the wealthy West, in Europe hmm. and America. It is exploding in South America. It is exploding in Africa. It is exploding in Asia. Um, hmm. And every nation, tribe, and tongue, it's happening. But there's something beautiful about unity in a disunified world. Once again, unity does not mean uniformity, that we're all the same. Unity means that in our ethnic and cultural diversity, the glory of God is manifested in us. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, God was reconciling the world in Christ unto himself. That's vertical and horizontal. So Hmm. individual salvation only exists so God, the father could give that family to Abraham for his glory. Hmm. Hmm. Did that Hmm. cover it?
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that was, yep. Yes. That covered it. I'm curious. So to follow up, I was going to ask about, you mentioned it earlier, um, how the gospel is both justice, evangelism, and discipleship, but you just answered that. So I, so so hold on, let, oh. let, let, me,
1: let me take a step back. The gospel yeah. is not those things. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord through his sinless life, atoning, substitutionary, to death on the cross, his resurrection, because of those things, the outflow then is evangelism, discipleship, justice, mm, reconciliation.
0: Got it. Got it. That's a helpful clarification. So why do you think so i I read this book as an advocacy for that i read it as an advocacy for proper understanding of christology i don't know if that was your intention to be a christology (laughs) Mm -hmm. book but it 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 was yes um it was yeah just dripping with (laughs) it i loved it but why why do you think it was necessary how did you know the churches get to a place where we had this like counterfeit jesus yeah
1: so justin first of all i love you for even asking that question Because everything I write, everything I preach, is going to drip with King Jesus. I have no message without him. I have no meaning without him. Our world needs Jesus more than ever. Not self-help, not emotional trigger words. They need to know the person and the work of Jesus. That's what apostolic preaching teaching is, is the apostles taught about who the person of Jesus is. And so the church is the bride and body of Jesus. Therefore, a high Christology of Jesus is needed. So Jesus is not only the true representation of God's highest ideal for humanity. He is also the image of the invisible God. So when we see Jesus, we see what man could be, and we see what God is. And I'm not going to preach and teach just an emotional message um, so people go, oh man, I felt the Spirit. Um, I think a lot of times what Christianity's like, and um, I hope this comes across with the spirit that I mean to say it in, is I picture um, Thanksgiving and great-grandma and grandpa are, are there. They've built the house. They've worked the land. All the kids are there. Their kids are there. And all these folks are just eating this incredible meal. And the great-great-grandparents are just sitting at the head of the table. And no one's talking to them. They're enjoying the benefits of what the great grandparents did, but they're not enjoying the benefit of a relationship with the great great grandparents. And then everybody leaves and on their way out, they say, uh, to the great great grandparents, we'll see you at Christmas. I hope it's better. And I think that's what we do with Christ is like we really don't want to know Jesus. We want to know the benefits of knowing Jesus. And so what I did in the in the book is I walked through the beauty and the grandeur of the person of Jesus Christ. And when you look at him, he did things that a Jew should never do. Uh, he healed a centurion. I mean, his daughter. I mean, can you imagine as a Jew healing the daughter of an occupier and colonizer? I mean, how many Romans— how many Roman centurions put Jewish men on crosses, yet Jesus heals them? Jesus goes to Samaria, where the Jews and the Samaritans had a 700 ethnic feud. Jesus tells a story about the good Samaritan. Why? Because Jesus embodied what humanity was to be and what God is, and God made a promise to Abraham, and God always comes through in his promise. And so, Racial reconciliation in the gospel is intrinsic because we're vertically reconciled to God and to each other, and we're to walk out this unity, thus Ephesians 2, 8 through 22.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with our remaining time, I know we have to—I know I'm watching the the clock. So far in um, my—in this journey of Christology, I'm 20 episodes in, and one of the— most repeating themes I've seen is that Christology always forms ecclesiology, like it always influences it. So I'm curious um, how your church has been embodying your this Christology, this Christology for ra- racial reconciliation. I'd love to hear about it so that, you know, other, other listeners who can't attend your church um, can hear and be uh, encouraged and um, influenced inspired.
1: Yeah, so I would say number one is the vision of transformation. Church is rooted in the great commandment: love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors. You love yourself. Let me pause here. Uh, Deuteronomy six four is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Leviticus nineteen nine through nineteen is love your neighbors. You love yourself. So when you read Leviticus 19, 9 through 19, it's all justice. It says things like, when the immigrant, when the foreigner comes to your land, when you glean the fields, leave some on the vine or on the ground so the immigrant, the poor, can pick it up. So that's what justice looks like. Justice is righting wrongs. Justice is healing hurts. But justice is also evangelism because people are going to go, What kind of God is this, that these people leave food for strangers? You know, so we're soaked in love, God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors, love yourself. Then we're rooted in the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Well, the nations are not just across the sea. They're across the street now. So we are to have a cross-cultural Cross generational reach because my neighbor of different ethnicities is going to be different ages as well. And so we're to teach them all that Christ has commanded. And ultimately, what did Christ command? Love God, love your neighbor, you love yourself. Everything can be summed up into that. And we rely upon the great grace of God to accomplish that. So that vision affects everything that we do. And so it fleshes out into a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. Our staff is multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Our small groups are multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Our serve teams are multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Has it been difficult? Yes. The hardest people to get to understand multi-ethnic ministry is not unbelievers who get saved here at Transformation Church. It's believers who come from other churches because they've been discipled in homogeneous ministry and don't even know it. So they're the hardest people to get. They'll say things like, well, pastor, you shouldn't talk about race. You should just preach the gospel. And I'll say tongue in cheek. Okay. Therefore, uh, I will not teach that Joseph was taken into Egypt. I will not teach that the Israelites were enslaved in, in Egypt. Then they had to fight the Canaanite, Hittites, Jebusite, Perizzites, taken into exile by the Babylonians, ruled by the Romans. Cornelius was not an Italian. The woman at the well was not a Samaritan. And at the end of the Bible, there's not every nation, tribe, and tongue. As you can see, we're left with no Bible. Listen, I can't even exegete Scripture properly without understanding the socio-historical reality. Of Jews and Gentiles. Jesus was a Jew. How do I preach the Bible without talking about Jesus as a Jew? How do I preach Luke 4 16 through 31, where Jesus says, This is what I came to do. Then he tells a story about uh, Elijah and Elijah, Elisha, and his Jewish hometown synagogue wants to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because Jesus is saying, As the true Messiah, I come to not only reach Jews, but to reach Gentiles. And they wanted Jesus to make Israel great again, not reach Gentiles with Messiah's great love. That's just a couple of illustrations. I think one of the reasons why we struggle in this area is because seminaries do and because pastors do, and the devil loves it. So that's why I wrote my book. Is I want hundreds of thousands of people to read it, live it, and share it because Jesus' glory is at stake. I want Jesus glorified. I want to bear witness to him.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Me too. And that's part of this, this podcast series, all about Jesus. So, Dr. Uh, Gray, thank you so much for your time, your, your heart. I'm really encouraged, inspired. I, you know, as someone in seminary, you're absolutely right. There is a deficit. And talking about, I love the way you said it, vertical and horizontal. That that's just I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that like an artist, as I say. Still I it. love that. It, it's it's amazing. So yeah, thank you for your time. I know you're super busy, so I do appreciate it.
1: All right, you're welcome, Justin. Hey hey, can I uh, can I share this with with you? Um, yeah. Um, seminary is awesome. It's great. Just remember, Jesus got an A plus for you on the cross. So you don't have mm-hmm. to sacrifice, if you're married, you don't have to sacrifice your family, your kids, your wife to get an A. Also, um, God doesn't want us to just know about him doctrinally, theologically. Yeah. He wants us to know him. And so make sure that what you know above all else is the depth of God's grace and mercy for you. So don't uh, don't leave there a cone head. Make sure that your head, your heart, and your mind and your will are overwhelmed with the grace of God and you give that grace away.
0: Mm. I appreciate that. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.